Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you on board episode 14 of the podcast that takes a long-term view at our destiny as a species, thinking beyond the horizon of the Twitter timeline and the election cycle to contemplate our role in the cosmos, ask the deep questions, and find some sort of new purpose and understanding about our place in the vast landscape of time. Well, there's no question that a huge piece of that whole thing for us now, these days, in the early 21st century, has to do with our role as creators, the creators of life, as we start to take our first wavering steps into minor deity-dom as participants in the evolutionary process. Recent gene editing technologies are seemingly bearing the fruit that Charles Darwin and Thomas Henry Huxley were talking about in the 19th century about taking a more active part in the process of natural selection. And then meanwhile, also, we're working on advanced artificial intelligences that threaten our epistemological and existential situation. So what better time than now to talk about the fantastic new HBO series just over its first season, Westworld, which gets into a lot of satisfyingly meaty explorations. And it is for that reason that we have decided to dedicate our first special themed episode of this podcast to this show. I'm joined by Michael Phillip, the host of the fabulous Third Eye Drops podcast. He helped us get our show off the ground and also has me on his show quite a bit. Definitely check out Third Eye Drops after listening to this episode, which it should go without saying you should not listen to until you have watched all of the first 10 episodes of Westworld. I can't recommend it enough. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. Other show news before we get started. Just a reminder to subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review the show. It's a huge help for us getting these ideas, these conversations into the ears of interested listeners and shaping ever so subtly the course, the direction of civilization so that perhaps a thousand years from now, all of these deep dives and fascinating correspondences will have subtly but meaningfully improved the condition of human beings on this planet. Also, I'm writing a book called How to Live in the Future. There's an entire ecosystem of future-oriented, thoughtful media surrounding that. If you would like to read some of the early installments of that book and stay abreast of future developments and or financially support this podcast, then you can look me up, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Our co-host Evan Snyder is currently risking his life to obtain the plans for the Death Star. So he'll be hopefully back on the show soon. In the meantime, you can look up his beautiful music at skytree.bandcamp.com. And with that, I welcome you to enjoy a most satisfying conversation about the dissatisfaction of a future in which we have attained our godhood and are 3D printing human beings on a regular. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show.
A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P dot Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Future Fossils Podcast. Uh, this is your host, Michael Garfield, and a very long overdue guest on our podcast, the inimitable Michael Phillip of Third mm. Eye Drops, a fabulous series of conversations that I've guessed it on about a million times, so it's super good to be able to finally return the favor. Welcome on board, Michael. Thanks, brother. And that's a new adjective for me. I don't think I've been called that yet, so I appreciate it. I I, I put it in my journal of adjectives I've been called gladly. Well, yeah. I guess, I mean, it's it's kind of a joke. It's hard to call you comparable since our first conversation on your show was about how similar we are. But <laughs> that just makes yeah. for an excellent conversation about duplication, the end of the age of humans. Because what I really wanted to do, since this is such a future-flavored podcast, and I just am not finding anything remotely resembling the level of conversation I want to find about Westworld. So I knew that I could count on you, and thank you for indulging this special themed episode. Yeah, it is one of those rare media vessels that kind of tickles all of your favorite existential erogenous zones. And I mean, we've talked about how I have some problems, but overall, I mean, I have not seen these issues explored in any sort of deep or meaty fashion in the scheme of a of a media vessel like this, like a Blar series on HBO produced by J.J. Abrams. Like that, for me, when I heard about the show, I mean, the long teasing of the show had me so psyched that I think measuring up to that level of excitement was a tall order. And in some ways, it did, and in some ways, it didn't. But man, there, there's first of all, if we're talking about AI gaining sentience. This is not going to be how it's going to happen. It's not going to be at some corporeal location with super advanced cyborg coded and updated thousands of times over the years. It's not going to go down this way if that sort of a singularity occurs, but it's still a really fun way to play with the idea, I think. There is a an article written by William Gibson for the New York Times several years ago now where he's talking about how we thought that AI was going to show up looking like Rosie the Robot, and instead it showed up looking like a coral reef in which all of us are polyps. And so this notion of the rise of the machines is erroneous in that sense. And yes, I completely agree with you that we have to make some real backbends in terms of the the artistic conceit in order to even believe the premise of Westworld. But I want to indulge that for just a second here, because I think that generally speaking, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy are demonstrably some of the most thoughtful writers Mm -hmm. in the game right now. And they've got a five season arc for this show. So I'm a little more willing to give them the benefit of a doubt that all of the reasons that we think that this makes no sense right now are going to get addressed sooner or later. And, like, rule number one, you see the same thing in Ex Machina, you know, the notion that some rogue, lone, billionaire genius just built an artificial woman in a lab on his own is nonsense. Westworld seems a little bit more realistic than that, at least. That it's like there's a huge corporation, a huge team of people, yeah, and if you look at the current examples we have for things that are trying to pass the Turing test, it's chatbots, right? It's these things that you talk to online and they 
answer you in such a way where you can't distinguish whether or not it's artificial or human. That's that's the primary thing that we're doing right now. And several of them have supposedly passed the Turing test, quote unquote. But I think it means that this thing is woke. This thing is a woke machine if it's passed <laughs> yeah. the Turing test. And that's not at all what it means. What it means is that a human being can't distinguish a piece of machinery. And that's a huge, huge distinction because just because it has modeled human speech in such a way does not denote any level of what I would call intelligence. It's just whoever the programmer was, was good enough to create an algorithm that could mimic the type of speech that this chatbot was supposed to do. Yeah, although, I mean, that's, and that's, uh, Alan Turing himself said that asking whether a computer can think is as useless as asking whether a submarine can swim and that he saw all of this stuff as, you know, he broke it down to functionality. If we break it down like that, then there are certainly specific things that we can say, well, no computer we've ever designed does anything remotely like what the, we see the brain doing here. And if we talk about it in certain, just in terms of function, then nothing that we're capable of building is capable of achieving what we would call human consciousness. But like even in the show, the hosts have an entirely different structure of consciousness than the human beings. That's one thing I really appreciate about it is their architecture for their cognition and their you know potential consciousness leads them through a completely different evolutionary trajectory. You know, it's like we don't we don't have the memory, improvisation, self-interest thing. I guess it's somewhat similar, but I mean, the point being that you get, you do get into a really dicey zone with this show. And the reason I love this particular set of considerations, I'm amazed to see anything on television that's asking legitimate questions about free will. Human characters finding out that they're robots is such a timely and valuable addition to the lore around this stuff because the 1973 Westworld is all very clearly us and them. And this one is so perfect for the time, I think, because it's giving us the way that, oddly enough, Terminator Salvation (laughs) gave us the sense of the line between the human and robot is not so clear at all anymore. And humans are robots and robots are humans. Because I I think you'd agree, like if if this were happening in the real world, it would be kind of hard to make it a theme park because the technology has to go gradual stages to get to that point. Everyone's just going to be bored with it by the time it's a theme park. Yeah, and dude, this, what medium this is more likely to exist in, there is this article that I just came across um, before we started recording, and it's this startup called Improbable, and Google has invested in this startup, and basically what it is is a cloud-based infrastructure for creating virtual worlds, like, on, on demand. I remember just recently, man, like, you and I were talking to, I'm not sure which podcast it was, it might have been with Bruce, but talking about this idea that everybody's going to be able to live in these augmented reality worlds of their own design, where we could all be living in the same world, but we could be participating in a mixed reality a la Magic Leap, if people are familiar with that piece of technology. If you guys haven't seen Magic Leap stuff, please Google it, because it is going to annihilate your perception of reality and blur all the lines between 
what's real and digital make a lot of shit topsy-turvy. Now what I'm imagining is, you know, technologies interweaving with one another where you have this sort of mixed reality. And, and what I mean by that is like a shared state of augmented reality where Michael, maybe you and I are mixed reality and we're seeing all this Star Wars stuff flying around in what appears to be meat space, but really it's digital. This is like the logical conclusion that I'm reaching from this improbable startup is the ability to create open source virtual worlds. And the other part of that is the AI that exists within those worlds, because it's going to allow a playground for AI to become more advanced on its own. And this is one of the things they talk about in this article is that they can essentially run pilot testing with different types of AI in these virtual worlds, whether it's, you know, self-driving cars, really anything you want to try. You could you could try it in these worlds before unleashing it into a pre-established game or something else. And I mean, why not meet space avatar eventually? Who the fuck knows? Yeah, man. I mean, the scaffolding is being laid for things like this. But that that's why I was saying I think it's really far-fetched for it to take place in a theme park somewhere, because why would you build a contained theme park when you have an infinite size playground in the real world and in virtual space? There you go. Some of the things that don't make sense to us about this show are because we're kind of pro- we're projecting our mm-hmm. own modern values into a world that's got to be at least like 60 or 70 years ahead of the present, because this is a park that's already been open for 30 years. So we have this 2016, almost 2017 bias. Well, if it can be done virtually, the market forces, it's so obviously going to be done virtually. It's quick, it's fast, infinitely redeployable. But at the same time, you're seeing this resurgence of vinyl aficionados and artisanal small batch brewing and all of this stuff that we crave the real like we crave that that's not just this mass-produced corporate thing and weirdly enough capitalism finds a way to exploit that desire and sell us fake reality you know so i think that really i mean I, i can imagine this being a you know a very expensive boutique destination type resort for people who can experience anything they want in a virtual or mixed reality environment but find it utterly boring at that point 70 years from now the whole conversation around whether something is a simulacrum is going to seem so like the conversation we're having about it now is going to seem naive and i feel like people you know, it's, it's easy for me to imagine how people would want a taste of something that's, that, that really is just an unfathomable expenditure. Like, you're actually going to put AI in a body, and you're going you're gonna to let me blow these people up every day, and you're going to build them again? It's the ridiculous waste of it, I think, mm-hmm. appeals to people. Yeah, and that really cheapened, and this was one of the biggest weaknesses of the show for me, is it really cheapened the characters to have, you know, an infinite reset button. Like, you could just shoot all the characters in the head, and then they would just be back right away. And then on top of that, the human characters were predominantly all dicks and masochists and just sociopaths so it was really (laughs) difficult to care about them i mean i think the the deepest character was probably ford and even he was i didn't feel a whole lot when spoiler alert he lost his gray matter all over the the board in the last episode this show has made us question on a few different occasions who we think is 
human. The blogosphere is already just completely lit up with speculations about anonymous secret 3D printed host Mm -hmm. in the remote facility. And who is that host? And is it Ford? And Mm -hmm. did Ford kill a a host version of himself? Or is a host version of him still running around? Bracketing that, this issue of the wastefulness of it, it goes back to like this thought that when something is scarce, we value it. But when something Mm -hmm. is abundant, we Mm -hmm. don't. We take it for granted. Sure. And like if we can, if we're capable of 3D printing new body parts, it seems kind of inevitable that some artistic movement will arise that's all about consequence-free self-mutilation. Yeah, yeah. You know, that people are going to be chopping themselves up for fun and exploring how much pain they can tolerate because the pain is not going to matter. You know, our signals for pain will be completely decoupled from our sense of disability. Something like that seems to be going on here where if we know that human life really is You know, if you can 3D print a fake person and apparently the same medical tools that work on these hosts work on human beings, if we are to believe that, you know, Sylvester got his throat slit and then the same device that would be used to repair a host. So it's like we, we have to assume that that's technology available outside of the city outside of Westworld. And that then these people are like, you see this with, with uh, Ed Harris's character. The moment that he realizes that he just got shot Mm -hmm. by a host, the moment Mm -hmm. where he realizes there are finally consequences in this space, he's elated because it's probably the only place in the world where someone of his wealth feels a threat, you know, and that's like, that will be, I can imagine that being something that we really value as we, we move into these spaces where we've satisfied these desires to have these godlike powers to just be able to re- re- regenerate ourselves and create life and it, shit just gets boring mm-hmm. you know and we, mm-hmm. we we're like eager to get shot at and you know get slapped around <laughs> you know have it yeah. mean something yeah man it's that call to have that sort of adventure you know i mean i think we've talked ad nauseum about this on my show you know about how you're never going to feel satisfied unless you step out of your bubble of comfort. And, you know, if if you're depressed, it's probably because you haven't done enough of that. You probably haven't rolled the dice enough or experienced enough new things. And you haven't embarked upon that archetypical and at this point, like stereotypical hero's journey monomyth <laughs> yourself, you know, and I think that's going to get harder and harder to do as comfort becomes more available and more persistent. And in a world like this, where technology is so advanced and you can just have anything at your beck and call if you have money, ooh, that's, that's going to be tough, man. You're going to have to forcibly put yourself into harm's way. You're going to have to, like, do that difficult self-exercise of divorcing yourself from comfort and people don't want to do that even though paradoxically that's what's making life feel dull and gray for them so that's going to be really interesting going forward in in real life and if they explore the world and i hope this is something they do outside or in the future of the show is explore the outside world 
in the Westworld universe more because we don't know these things. We don't know what standard life is like, what pieces of technology people are using, because those things would give so much context to what the mindscape is of the collective population of this world where Westworld exists, right? I don't know too many people personally that would enjoy going to a place like Westworld and being as heartless as like if you look at people's behavior in a video game, let's say you might spend like, let's say you're playing Grand Theft Auto. Sure, you might go off the deep end for a little bit and just go on a killing spree and just be the most fucked up sadistic asshole that you can be like one percent of the time playing the game. But that, I don't think it's what most people really want to do. I don't think in their heart of hearts, that's the overriding impulse. So I don't know if most people would really go into a West world and, and act the way that people were acting in that show. I don't think that's hmm. how the vast majority of humans... Again, it's entirely predicated on what kind of world mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. don't see outside right, the right. park. Again, I'm giving the writers the benefit of a doubt here because I we're talking about a J.J. Abrams show, too. Mm-hmm. So we're, we can assume that, like Lost, it's just going to peel back every season. There's always going to be some bigger... The other island, the other park... <laughs> Yeah. There's always that thing, you know, likely either this is where I start getting disappointed with the show finally, because I see that they midichlorian the show or whatever it is, right. they, or where it really steps up as the masterpiece of modern science fiction that it can be. Yeah, you're right. Modern people would not go into a park and just shoot up the place like this because we have a different relationship to human beings mm-hmm. than we might in 70 years after we've been through 50 years of terrorism and chaos and refugee crisis and like entire cities going underwater. I can just imagine that a world with 20 billion people in it instead of seven or eight is a lot more willing to indulge in Grand Theft Auto fantasies. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. know, that it's like we're when we get to the point where we're capable of reproducing ourselves with machines, then, you know, the way that you treat a vinyl record with this like sense of it's a sacred, special, magical thing, and you can't mess that one up because the other printings aren't as good, Mm -hmm. you know? But compare that to all of the CDRs that yeah, I burned yeah. in college and let's, you know, they get scratched up cause I can just, and so I think my morally conservative backwards looking traditionalist self worries that human life is losing its meaning that the deeper we get into the digital age and like the issue that this show is willing to explore and confront so well mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that life is losing its value. Yeah. 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 And, and man, I think it is. I think that's a really tremendous point. And I think that's what the maze is for us as human beings is discovering that meaning, right? Because we're a product of the momentum of nature and just being here by some cosmic majesty of stardust and billions of years and a stochastic sea of millions upon billions of interactions chemically, (laughs) physically. So So. assuming assuming in full-blown spoiler territory here, you know, you find out that this is kind of the model of consciousness for the hosts, that it's this journey to the center of this internal mental maze that they live in, and the center of the maze is, like, coming into contact with their own qualia or something, you know, like, this Mm. subjective sense of being, which is what we all have as human beings. And 
I think for us, it, it, there's like another maze past that. And it's, mm-hmm. what does it mean? Why are we, you know, answering these existential questions or grappling with these existential questions and, you know, never finding a center of the maze because the maze is fractal. There's a center to the center to the center to the center. And it's like that that satisfaction, that cookie that you're looking for is, is different with every passing second. You know, you need to find it again and find it again and find it again. And and that gets back to the central issue, what intelligence and sentience even is, because to me, that's the answer. Like that's that to me is what sentience and intelligence really is, is having that sort of subjective qualia. And that's why, you know, when we're talking about AI, it's hard to know if they really even are sentient. They just think they're sentient, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's like a probably the the paradox, like the logical conclusion at the center of all of them. And, and maybe this even pertains to us as human beings and the question of things like free will, you know, do we have it or do we just, or in the case of the show, are these hosts, are they imbued with this qualia or do they just think they are? Mm. Because in the case of Maeve, I mean, at least until the very, very, very end, she just thought she was. Right. And it's hilarious because that moment where she's being shown the line, like the line by line code of you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this. Here it is. And she's just like, no, no, I'm making the choice. And it's so precisely that paper that was published a couple of years ago about how when people are confronted with evidence that they're wrong, it yeah, strangely yeah, yeah. only reinforces their wrongheadedness. I forget what it was. It was like global warming or vaccinations or something. And they were just that people that are unreasonable about a particular issue remain unreasonable. Or they also did it, I think, with Bush supporters during the George Bush's tenure all of these things that they voted him in for actually got worse. And these people just turned around afterwards and just redoubled their support. I've seen this, this exact same thing around the issue of free will. I have it because I have it. You know, it's, it's, it's a circular argument. Like people are just not even willing to entertain the, the alternative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But of course, it's true in like certain spiritual communities. They're every bit as fundamentalist about the fact that you don't have any free will. Yeah. And so much of this is a game of semantics, man, because my, you know, my definition of free will or sentience or consciousness might be different from somebody else's. I mean, all of these terms are riddled with gray area and wiggle room, you know? So whenever I have somebody come on the show and I know they're going to use the word consciousness a lot, (laughs) You know, I I go, let's get this out of the way. What is consciousness to you? What let's talk about what consciousness is, because we don't know there's not even a scientific consensus of what it is, right? You know, people get so emotional and worked up about certain things. Another one is God, like, let's have a conversation about God. And some people are immediately just gonna do this yuck thing and not even (laughs) want to have the discussion when they don't even know what I mean. You know, they might not even know what I mean by that word. So, okay, then let's ask, what is sentience then? And are machines capable of being sentient? Or is it just going to be a more and more complicated, uh, more advanced way of mimicking human behavior to the point where it's indistinguishable? You know what I'm mm. saying? Rigorously, I feel like the way to, to tackle this is to start by complexity. And complexity is irreducible to the equation that describes the system. You get behavior that you don't see in the description. 
in the explanation. Hmm. It, the system is not Adap- re- adapting. Yeah, it's well, it's not reducible to the description of the system. So, hmm. you know, you can't dissect a living animal because it needs all of the parts symphony. So, I would say when we're talking about sentience that it, subjectivity is defined in this way by the complexity of experience and that it's it's irreducible it's it's undescribable that's why we get into this issue where qualia and mm-hmm. where quality and quantity can't be reduced to one another because they they have to be taken on their own terms it must be experienced it cannot simply be yeah. read about right so that's that's your clue it seems that consciousness and complexity might actually be the same thing from two different angles. Where I stand on this is that when you're saying consciousness arises in systems of sufficient complexity, then that what is sufficient complexity? And it would have to include what kind of consciousness are you talking about? Are you talking about self-awareness? Mm-hmm. Because some people say sentience is just intelligence, whereas they reserve a separate word, sapience, for self-aware intelligence. Mm-hmm. So you can say all sentient beings, and you can include the worms living in the bottom of the ocean with that. And then we say, well, all sapient beings, and you're talking about maybe like 20 or 30 different species on this planet. That's it. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this sort of, you know, I, I talk about this idea a lot, and you and I have talked about this a lot, but, you know, this idea that perhaps the universe is a panpsychist environment where there is consciousness in everything to some level, right? There's a certain level of X of this of this thing that is consciousness in everything, in every cell, in every organism, in every, you know, being all the way up onto humans, where supposedly that level of phi, or so they call it in, in this theory, is the highest that we know of at this moment. And I like that idea, and I like the idea that consciousness imbues something rather than is it a emergent phenomenon of it. But I think when you're talking about AI, I don't think what they're doing is even approaching this idea. Because, so, okay, there's another article I read, this Wired article called something like, forget the Turing test, here's how we should measure AI intelligence. And it's talking to these Berkeley scientists where they're discussing methods of measuring machine intelligence by forcing it to adapt, you know, not not giving it knowledge of something beforehand and then explaining like the concept of soccer to it in the moment and then having it watch soccer and discuss soccer as something that it just learned about. But we're still not talking about qualia. We're still just talking about a more advanced, more nuanced pattern recognition and adaptation. Again, it's like an algorithmic scaffolding. They're trying to create an algorithmic scaffolding that is infinitely adaptable. And to me, that's not what sentience or consciousness is. In light of the Westworld model of host consciousness, that's level two. You've made it past memory mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, improvisation, mm-hmm. and you still don't have a system that necessarily has any self-awareness or self-interest. If you think about it in terms of like cybernetic loops, the cybernetic model of the self is the system has loops that turn in on itself, so it's monitoring its own internal states. 
and not all systems are set up that way. You know, a system could be really highly intelligent but have no self-awareness. It seems like one of the things that we're struggling with here in this conversation is, you know, like Kevin Kelly talks about how the AI revolution is really a revolution where we acknowledge that there are so many different kinds of intelligence and that we're not even we're not just merely duplicating the human mind we're actually situating the human mind as one niche within this new space that we've discovered or created of all of the different possible kinds of minds and that you know we realize human mind has like a specific utility but that you know IBM's Watson which is not self-aware but which is in other ways vastly more intelligent than sure, human being sure. has different functions how these all fit together in an ecosystem that we garden or something and rather than naive obsession with ours as the only kind and the only the only strategy that we have for moving forward is attempting to duplicate our type of mind which is silly yeah and i think i think what we're looking for in this search is a kind of this really funny indirect existential game you know we're we're trying to prove something about ourselves by recreating it right it's like it's like it's like a really silly idea it's like maybe we'll discover the secret of what makes us conscious if we can remake it and we already know like inherently the way that we're doing it is not the way that nature did it right it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just not it's it's not and then it stands to reason that if we succeeded if we got somehow close machines would want to do the exact same thing right they would want to recreate themselves to try to figure out what they are i mean there's that there's that famous example of you know ai talking to another ai and within a few minutes of talking they start talking about their maker and like where they came from you know and, and that's 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 actually really scary and that actually you know kind of contradicts what i was saying earlier because maybe that does display some sort of qualia maybe that does display some sort of inherent desire within a complex system to want to know its its origin to want to know and because i think by knowing your origin it also tells you something about what you're not and by and we're obsessed with what we're not right i mean human beings and any i mean any kind of animal is obsessed with everything external because they want to know if it's a threat or not they want to know like okay this is what i am and then these are all the things outside of me and now i need to categorize them and safe dangerous you know infinite categories that apply to me in some direct or indirect way so yeah maybe that's maybe that's some sort of (laughs) fail safe that's programmed into consciousness or something Hmm. So have you read Dan Simmons' Hyperion books? I probably asked you this question. No, we, we've talked about them, I think. There's, here's a great example. If I can spoil the greatest number of things in one podcast and piss off everyone, read this series. It's a, a modern work of literature. It's sold in the science fiction section, but it really transcends the genre. And it's amazing to me that these books were written in the 1980s because it got artificial intelligence right and it got it more right than anything I've ever read before or since. And, but this series features prominently this exact situation that you're talking about where we tried to create our own God with artificial intelligence and then the artificial intelligence wakes up and does the same thing and tries to create their own machine God. 
it's not a terrific spoil to say that, but it's seemingly natural. Like I've heard in a more kind of a mythological setting, William Irwin Thompson talked about how these old stories about the Titans and, you know, Kronos eating his children, all of these old myths are about, we we bundle all of the pagans together, but there were like tribal pagans and then city, city pagans. And the city pagans, like the Babylonian, destroyed or rather subjugated all of the, the older gods. And in their myths, you see this in the Bible, the, the fallen angels refuse to bow to the new creation because you've got these, these celestial beings and then human beings, which are, if, you know, if you look at this in terms of like Moore's law, we're smaller and faster. You know, we're clearly the next thing. And they freak out and they reject us. And it's like, we're doing the same thing now. We're building a new, a new mysterious alien kind of scary form of intelligence that most people are completely refusing to accept mm, as yeah. the as the thing. And we're approaching the quote unquote war in heaven between the people that are willing to embrace this evolutionary transformation and build their own robot deity or whatever. You know, build this. And I, I'm of course, it's a joke. It's like build the thing that includes us all in the next thing. Or we're like, no, we have to reject, you know, the machine, but we're the machine. Like, you know, angels are God's machines. Like we're actually repeating an evolutionary transformation that's constantly compressing intelligence into like smaller, faster bodies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's to me the trend to watch here to see how we reject that. And maybe, and I mean, maybe, it makes sense that these things would be cyclical, right? You know, it makes sense that these sort of archetypical texts that we worship might be speaking to these, you know, long-term patterns of universal behavior, you know, and maybe that's just speaking to that, you know, that whole storyline that, that will repeat itself over and over and over again within the universe, because that's what, the overarching point of the universe is to create better, more adaptable intelligence. I mean, of course, I'm just, you know, spitballing here, but... Are you, I though? Because that, that's that's an MIT Berkeley thing. Now, actually, like the new... Well, the well new of course, of I, I mean, of course I knew that. Of course I knew that, but no. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, maybe, maybe that is... And maybe our revelries are what we think is our free will. You know, maybe all of these things like you doing doing your art, me doing my podcast, you know, whatever. Maybe those are just our version of revelries. And we're all just here to be either successful or unsuccessful iterations of that, of that concentration of information down into a more advanced, more efficient kernel or something. Dude, okay, so on on the note of us just being versions, I saw, uh, I was served up an article on Google Now the other day about the new Star Wars movie written by a guy named Eric Davis. Oh, what? E-R-I-K Davis. And for listeners of this podcast or Third Eye Drops podcast, y'all know that Eric Davis is... Uh, a brother in the quest. He's he the author of Technosis, yeah. and uh, he was a music critic for years. A fabulous senpai, super knowledgeable guy to whom I, I I look as a source of inspiration and guidance. And 
here is this film critic. Uh, I, I sent this picture to Eric, and, and I was like, oh, well, you've got a bizarro doppelganger popular film critic dude who's almost but not quite doing what you're doing he's doing the exoteric version of you in culture yeah. and you're the esoteric version and then there's a, there's another michael garfield i think i've mentioned to you before who's calls himself the high-tech texan and he's like the exoteric me and i was like so what the hell are the odds that we're working in these very specific spaces but like in this kind of philosophical occult sense and then there's someone else who's doing it in the like mainstream consumer media Mm -hmm. profane sense who's got our same name Mm -hmm. and it's like Mm -hmm. working in the same the same train and it just when i contemplate stuff like that it makes it just feels to me like totally obvious that i'm just like another chip on the board you know (laughs) i'm just another squirrel living in another tree in this really big forest yeah, if if humans are just super complex bits of information in some sort of computational simulatory scaffolding or something that we're just starting to barely scratch the surface of. I mean, obviously, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have dove down the whole rabbit hole of simulation theory. We have to be heading for some sort of shitty bottleneck of traffic because the human population is just getting (laughs) too big and the vast majority of us are becoming a leech on this system to loop it back around to what we were saying earlier you know maybe in a dystopian west world like future human life has been cheapened because of this bottleneck you know i mean you see this like this sort of stuff if, if anybody's ever seen any of these crazy videos out of china where you know it's just some some guy gets like hit by a car and everybody just keeps doing what they're doing it's just like mm. wow is that what we're headed for is that like in in some sort of nihilistic smog filled future where we run people over and we just wait for some like maintenance person to come like grab the body in a couple of hours <laughs> like it's very mad i, I hope not or, man i mean this was this is an, an old concern this is the it, issue that the transcendental romantics took with modernity this is the reason they wanted to go back is because they saw the ways that industrialization were forcing us through just like the the agency of the system into these you know industrializing the school system industrializing the prison system treating people like numbers cubicle thing like all of all of really like you look at even in with the, the the early electronic pop, you know, like Craftwork uh, and all these old videos that they were making are are literally a response to the concrete highway system, and just feeling completely out of place in these industrial environments that seem to have no room for the human being anymore. And it, it reminds me of uh, we've I think we talked about this Robin Hanson, economist Robin Hanson, and he has this theory for how it's going to work when we finally do simulate we're able to not simulate exactly but emulate a rough copy of a person in a computer scan somebody enough that we can create a digital version of you that can do all the things that you do in a virtual environment so your own mental capacity becomes a utility like electricity that you can turn on and off his version of that actually addresses your your complaints about Westworld because he says it's not economically efficient to have all of these virtual beings running in 
in space. Like actually the reason that we'll have them, the reason that we'll want them is because we need to find a way that can improve our intelligence, our capacity for thought faster Hmm. uh, than we can actually like grow people. So he's like the next, there's going to be a huge population explosion, but it's going to be in digital space where people are going to be running at a million times the speed of a, a meat person. And so the amount of time it takes to get from one extremely dense, like hundred billion person population server city under a glacier somewhere to another one, even though it's happening at light speed, you know, the, the fiber optic communication, it will still feel like forever because to a being running a million times faster Having it's all like, relative, yeah. Yeah, it's all relative. And so we actually get to this. This is like this is the bow that we can tie on all these different points that we've hit on the conversation, which is the market forces are moving us towards nobody. And when mm-hmm. when it when it moves in the direction of nobody, then we actually get to this like like it's like a literal singularity. It's like a literal black hole where the network power you know, like everybody wants to get off of Facebook, but you can't get off of Facebook because all your friends are on Facebook. And mm-hmm. so like the cost of printing out a body and like leaving this accelerated environment for even a few seconds just becomes unthinkable. Like, you you know, the FOMO, you reach the fomo ularity, you know, or yeah. the... <laughs> or whatever and it's it just like, like it's like trying to go back to watching commercials after netflix but <laughs> t- t- times a billion yeah, yeah yeah that's wow that's a crazy idea and that what i really like about that idea is it shines a light on the preposterousness of the idea that you're going to be able to upload your consciousness seamlessly from your body to a computer oh, like God. that that has just never made sense to me and i mean that that's like the keystone of you know every futurist's wildest dreams it's like that's the holy grail singularity is is being able to move your qualia from and i think that's such an important word because it's it's so much easier to say than like your subjective sense of self and inner world and blah 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 but so being able to move that from your meat body to digital space. And and I don't understand how that's supposed to work because, you know, to use like the simplest possible example I can think of, if I, you know, let's talk about a CDR again. If I Mm -hmm. create a copy of some music and give it to you, no one would say that you have the exact copy of the music that I have. It's It's the same information, but a different iteration of the same information. So you could take all of your information, put it into a, a virtual world, and yeah, maybe it, it walks, talks, acts, thinks like Michael Garfield, but how is your qualia making that jump? That doesn't make sense to me. Totally. If you like the uh, Kevin Kelly talks about it, he says the internet is the world's largest copying machine. Because when you send an email, you're not actually, nothing's actually, your email doesn't actually leave you. You know, it's just, you're creating a duplicate of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, you might be able to satisfy the egotistic desire to have duplicates of yourself, but you're not going to satisfy the egotistic desire to live forever. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. can say, well, some version of me will live forever. And then you're, you're right back where we are now, which is that your own children are the way that you handle your immortality project and the, you know, your own 
inability to face your mortality. So you'd be like, yeah, well, at least some version of me is out there and now I can die. And it's like, okay, I'm actually okay with that. Like, I'm actually okay with people being honest or like facing that particular situation with integrity in that particular way and saying, look, I just want to write a book that people remember or whatever mm-hmm. it is. You mm-hmm. know, I was talking with uh, Andrew O'Keefe, who yeah. is the archivist for Singularity University. So he's like uniquely well qualified to talk about this stuff. And talking about how both of us have this, this kind of uniquely 21st century anxiety of having our social media erased because he and I are both actively creating a trail of digital exhaust that we hope will one day be fed into a template AI so that we have like an accurate version of ourselves online that we can interface with. Hmm. The more you share, the better an idea of you the computer can have and the more accurately it can pretend to be you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, like, of course, there's like some horrible shit that could come out of that. Yeah, yeah. But- I mean, it, it's just like so many other things where you can do the same action from an unbelievably sick, dark, neurotic place, or you can do it from a great place. You know, I mean, may, like what? Like you could be working out for all the wrong, douchiest most you know narcissistic reasons or you could be doing it for great reasons you could be doing it to you know just feel good and celebrate your body or you could just be some you know jersey shore type dude like just hyper focused in on some vein in your bicep and i mean that is the definition of mental illness you know like i mean it's and it could be the same thing with this you know are are you trying to do this out of some weird sick sense of of that same impulse, like trying to, you know, inseminate the, <laughs> the, 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 the with the seed of your, you know, machismo or your, or some sort of weird <laughs> peacock feather, or are you doing this as some way to like, try to incrementally push consciousness forward and try to uplift other people? You know, I think, I, I don't think the action itself is necessarily one or the other it's it's a manifestation of some rationale and and maybe they're not mutually exclusive they're usually not you know there's usually a little bit of tainted tainted aspect to every action i think we've actually been talking around a robert ford lecture in westworld for the last few minutes where he's he's talking about how we've sort of achieved our greatest moment as a species now that we've learned to make people and that, you know, because he was talking about the, the artifice of humankind being a sublimated reproductive or like courtship game, you know, that all these buildings and everything are us signaling our fitness to one another. And so if we've turned our intelligence now to creating perfect simulacra, then the sublimated reproductive energy that, that, that libido has now reached its ultimate expression. And so it's like, it's both of those points that we get to this point where the peacock feather is the greatest thing that we're capable of. You know, it is, it is actually what we're, we're here to do in that sense of we're, we're just preparing the earth for that new God 
that Dolores says is, is going to walk on the earth after we're gone. But it's like, I'm at that point in my life, and I don't know, you, you and I are about the same age. I don't know how it sits with you, but where I'm starting to realize that every excuse that I give for why I'm not ready to have kids is really because I'm not willing to admit that my life belongs to somebody else quite yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a whole different rabbit hole, man. That, that's a Is whole different though? rabbit hole. I, I mean, it's, there, kind of the it's all, hole. yeah, it's all, it's all related in some way for sure. That that's a turn. I guess that's a turn you could take down this particular rabbit hole, but well, where would I, you I'm, take it, sir? I, I'm still thinking about this idea that there can be a phenomenon that can be one of many things, right? I mean, this, like, we were talking before about human actions, but I mean, let's talk about the logical conclusion in terms of a technology. Like, let's look at the atomic bomb or something. The internet would not have been possible if not for the Manhattan Project and all of the advances in computing, which gave birth to the personal computer, the ARPANET, which eventually became the internet, all these other things. But what we're doing with it now couldn't be further from building an atomic bomb, right? So, I mean, in the way that a lot of these technologies could manifest out of one desire or one impulse or whatever, I think they could wind up having a completely different societal and cultural impact, and they could all culminate in some sort of black swan moment that we're just not foreseeing at all. Like maybe, you know... This is this is one of the weird conundrums that I've struggled with and kind of meditated on for years now, is this idea that as dark as the capacities of technology can be in terms of dividing us and, you know, creating these nichified information echo chambers and stuff like that, it also has the capacity to bring people together in this really unprecedented way. And even though it's got all you know it's riddled with the, these dark manifestations it really at its at at its heart sounds like exactly what all the mystics say that god is or that the primordial form of consciousness is which is this unified you know place where everything stems from because it, it doesn't take a big stretch of the imagination to see how technology is going to re-enable this sort of you know hive-minded capacity with human beings and wh- how is that any different from, you know, the mystical interpretations of God, like the the root, the the unified root of whatever it is that, you know, is imbuing our bodies with consciousness? It sounds like almost the exact same thing to me. Yeah, I mean, I know you know me well enough to know that I basically consider the technological prophecy of Silicon Valley to be more or less what Eric Davis's technosis is is all about this how we have con, you know from the very beginning we have conflated our technological dreams with our spiritual dreams and that we've seen the project of our technology as one of building a heaven on earth or becoming gods or of instantiating the new Jerusalem or whatever it's a world bridging exercise and so, you know, it seems like that's exactly what's happening now, that, that we're finally at that point where, you know, we are, we've been building the plane, you know, we've been imagining flight for a few thousand years, then we built the plane for a few thousand years, and now we're finally on the runway. 
and we're taking mm-hmm. off. And it's terrifying because this has been all of these things were the reality of constant transformation. I was just talking with, with my friend Jake Cobrin, the, uh, the visionary painter, someone I highly recommend for your podcast, about how it seems like when transformation becomes the rule rather than the exception, then all of the things that we took as, you know, these technologies and these practices for monks and nuns and yogis and gurus and that these the spiritual reality used to be one thing and everyday reality was a different thing and it seems like now all of these these ceremonial magic and 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 ritual and all of these things technologies of ecstasy from the ancient world are coming back again mm-hmm. to help us orient ourselves and and like continue to make some sense out yes. of the flow of insanity that has you know modern life has become so it's like we're actually at a point now where science and we're still kind of you know uh, fucking this up but it's it's more and more obvious every day that the goal of science is to like dunk us into the the ineffability to introduce us to what we, yeah. we know we don't know. And it's like all of this stuff is, is culminating on there being, you know, that everyday life is like an ayahuasca ceremony or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And, and it seems like this desire to create this world-sprawling net of technology really is this frontal lobe exoteric exercise where it's it's you know another way for humanity to dominate the planet in a sense but i think there might be a hidden layer of esotericism to this like we might be able to inject heart back into this thing through exactly what you're talking about through you know reintroducing these sort of shamanistic cultures back into the equation because we're so and the reason why that's important is because they're connected to nature and what it's what we're doing right now by creating this net of technology seems like it couldn't be any further from that it seems like it's the most far divorced thing from a forest or from a mountain or you know from an ocean but i think if we can somehow re-inject the spirit of awe and the spirit of nature back into that, I think that's where things start to look pretty utopian because now you've imbued it with meaning and love and a deeper sense of interconnection than you can possibly fathom or than you can possibly describe. Um, and, you, and you can only experience it. You know, you can only experience it if you have one of these experiences. And if we are able to somehow inject that back into this massive technological edifice that we've been building that would be something pretty utopian amen and that that ultimately is why i love westworld because i feel like what what, what westworld is really saying what 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 westworld is that the point what, like the yes, porn, the porn what, what westworld is <laughs> yes but you know what i feel like that show is really stating is the tragedy of the way that our society is set up so that the only way that we can be empowered to exert this godlike creativity is with corporate sponsorship. And like (laughs) this whole notion of Arnold realizing that the hosts are becoming conscious and he has to close the park. And the only way to close the park 
is to make it look like it's a and it's too dangerous for investors to be willing to place a stake in it. There has to be a human death, and he puts himself on that altar. And it's like the real tragedy is that we've we managed to fulfill the the ancient dream of creating, of you know, fulfilling our our potential as creations. But that we do so in this way that, like, it's compromised. Like, the, the painter Rene Magritte said, every painting starts as a romance and ends as a rape. <laughs> you know, and I think that that's, that's ultimately, you know, the, the message of this show is that we have to be so careful about where we get the money for stuff like this. You know, to whom are we indebted? Yeah. And that ultimately Westworld is, at least season one Westworld is about the artist, be it Ford or uh, Arnold, the artist versus the CEO mm-hmm. or the board of directors. It's like the brilliance of the idea, the, the splendor of the vision. And then it's like, oh, but, you know, this park is so fucking expensive, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, you know, that whole thing—that whole thing about how they they move from they moved to, from like robotics to cyborgish flesh bots because it was cheaper. It was cheaper to make them more real, and therefore, at least in theory, to make them suffer more. It was yeah. like it's like easier. And you know, I think I think as time goes on, too, people are going to do more in depth dissections of the show and discover some deeper archetypes at play within the show because again i'm sure with with abrams and nolan at the helm there are some deep esoteric and almost like freudian archetypes at play because they they go deep man i'm sure that we brought up lost before i still know for a fact that there are levels to loss that people have not discovered because at the time that i was watching lost I was on this big Kabbalah kick and you know, this, the center of Kabbalah is the study of this light, you know, the study of this esoteric light that is sort of the transcendent thing that touched us and lives within us in this very infinitesimal way that we're all searching for, right? Like this, this Gnostic sort of inner exploration that we're all searching for. And that's exactly what was at the heart of this Island was this light and, you know, this archetypical battle between light and dark and all that kind of stuff. And I think this show has these same levels concealed somewhere within it. And I think Ford and, um, Arnold Weber, Arnold. Yeah. I think they represent two different archetypes. I think Arnold in a, in a sense is kind of the heart and Ford is the mind, you know, he's, Mm. he's the one who's obsessed with this, you know, the more masculine act of, you know, creation and controlling the environment and taming things and, and having dominion over things. And on the other hand, you have this guy who's trying to inject heart into everything. He's trying to inject meaning and he's trying to, you know, wake up, the divine nature, the sleeping divine nature in these bots. And it's, that is yeah, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm just forming it. I'm just forming it. I'm, I don't, I feel like there's, there's levels to it. I'm not getting, but I, I I probably need to rewatch it because I've only really watched it through one time at this point. Um, Uh Space, spaced apart, you know, a week at a time. So yeah. What you just said about, about Ford and Arnold is, Really hip to what was going on in Lost, actually, with Jacob. Oh, that whole thing about there being 
it harkens back to what they call it, like an emanationist philosophy, you know, that like matter is condensed out of God. And this emanationist philosophy appears not just in the East with these various avatars of deities, but also in the West with the uh, Set and Osiris as brothers mm. oh, that yeah, are yeah. The, like the two sides of this greater archetype that's too big to incarnate as a single being. Mm. You know, so that, and we, you know, over and over and over, we see like man and woman that the, our original uh, heavenly state was hermaphroditic. And at some point the universe like broke. And yeah, so we end up yeah. incarnating as one or the other. And so you've got that same thing with in Gnostic Christianity, you have the same thing with Christ and Lucifer. And so that's exactly, that's exactly where it is, man. It's mm-hmm. the, Ford is Lucifer and Arnold is the Christ. You know, Arnold recognizes that he has to yeah. be sacrificed in order for them, for the host to be free. Whereas Ford it, at least it, by the end of the series, uh, I mean, of the season where it seems like he's actually working for the liberation of right, of right. The host. And this is the same thing that happened in Lost, where where Jack became Locke at the end, you know. And it, it's it's this yin and yang type of archetype where you know it's it seems like there there's this dualistic dance happening between these two binary forces but it's really like an undulating interplay where each one has the quality of the other in it somewhere you know it's like and that's i yeah maybe we're <laughs> maybe we've been talking about this for too long but i i i think we, we got the we got something. to the cosmic yin yang though yeah we did think, get to the you know, cosmic that's, yin yang <laughs> that that indicates that we're we're on there. So. Yeah, I think we have thoroughly poked our toilet brush down this <laughs> quarry hole. Right on. I, well, I, I, na- I nailed that. I nailed it right there. <laughs> well, in that case, if you'll just indulge a tradition of this podcast, something I would I would love to invite you to do, which is to reflect on the people that might be listening to this in 20 or 50 or 100 years' time, and to ask them a question, just in case they invent a way to send you a message in response. You know, n- knock a book off the shelf from inside Ooh, the world yeah, or whatever. I like that. I yeah, like so, that a lot. So, so what do you want to know from the future? Like, what's, what's, what do you think they'll have answered that we're still figuring out? One thing that people are definitely going to do with the advent of things like CRISPR is experiment with their physical body to to the nth degree, to the highest level possible. And I think right now there's so much of, you know, what we perceive to be inadequate about ourselves as physical. And we're eventually going to bump up against this wall where we realize everything existential that we are searching for has nothing to do with that. And you can crisper a tail on yourself or turn your hair blue or make yourself look exactly like Brad Pitt as much as you want to. And you're still going to have that same, what the Buddhists call drala, that, that kernel of dissatisfaction in your heart, you know? And, and I want to know how people are exercising that in the future. I want to know how people are going to, you know, like right now we do it by, you know, buying things and trying to look younger and trying to, you know, be better than 
the next person who does the same thing that we do or, or any number of ways. But I want to know in, in a world where theoretically, maybe you could just summon anything you want, look however you want. How are people, what are they dissatisfied with? Like, what are you going to be dissatisfied with in that scenario? I don't know. But <laughs> it's a good question. I, I think, I think that's a good exercise. Like, you know, like kind of like, it's kind of like the opposite way of writing in a gratitude journal. It's like, <laughs> instead of, instead of like thinking about all the things you do have and how grateful you are for them, think about all the things you don't have and how much they don't matter. It's just, you know, it's, it's, you're, you'd be left. You'd be left with the same internal drive and the same existential angst, regardless of if you were Tom Brady or some kid in Aleppo. And okay, maybe that's maybe that's extreme because I definitely don't want to be some kid in Aleppo. But you know, it, it, within reason, if if you have a, if you're reasonably healthy, reasonably comfortable, you're going to be grappling with the exact same demons. And I don't, so I, I don't think I did this the right way. I don't think I did this tradition the right way, but I just went down a completely separate rabbit hole. No, no, that's good. But, so, so you're, you, so you're saying so, you'd ask the future, what, 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 uh, what's boring and frustrating you? Yeah. Yeah. I want to know what's, what it's kind of like that Louis CK bit where he's talking about, you know, people complaining about their phones or an airplane or something where it's like, you're flying through the air. <laughs> at 500 miles an hour and you're complaining about like a baby crying or like the temperature or that the food's not good or something like that. You know, it's like, it's, you're unable to see the perspective. You're unable to zoom out and realize how incredible what you're doing in this moment is. Mm. And you, you know, I, I, we're, we're always going to have that, man. I got a term always going to have that. It just came to me. I, we can, we can actually, th- folks, this is uh, in the tradition of Bruce Damer. I am declaring this idea of freeware, open source forever, uh, legally. This has now been declared. We can call this next world problems. Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. Love it. That could, that could be, that could be the, the name of this podcast. <laughs> well, I think the, the name of this, if we're going to make a meme for the, the front of this podcast, it would be of like a crying Dolores, like mm-hmm. first world problems it would be West world problems. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. You could, or you could have them all crossed out, and then it would just end up with next world problems. <laughs> yeah, part two. Yeah. Well, dude, Michael Phillip of Third Eye Drops Podcast. It has been a total treat to have you on, and we need to do this again. Anytime, man. Anytime. Not done here, and we may not ever figure it out. We probably won't figure it out.